Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 16 of the Clarinet Podcast. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, D'Addario ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds. On episode 11 of the podcast, I discussed the Reform Boehm clarinet system with guest Race of Falman. Uh, it might come as a surprise, but I really didn't know if that episode would go anywhere because it seems like such an obscure topic, but uh, it actually became the most commented on and shared episode yet. So to continue the conversation, today the guest is Sue Ryle, who is an accomplished performer and educator currently living in Germany. She has recently applied to do her doctorate on the Reform Boehm system and maintains that it represents the most significant developments in clarinet technology since Mueller invented the rings and thumb rest. The giveaway for today's episode is a D'Addario prize pack featuring one box of classic or reserve reeds, a reed guard, and some mouthpiece patches. If you'd like to be eligible to win this and other items mentioned on the podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter. See clarinet.com for details. And now for today's episode with Sue Ryle. Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, Sue, and thanks for taking the time to be with us today on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So you're currently uh, pursuing uh, the idea of a doctorate studying the Reform Bohm clarinet system in comparison to the the French system, the uh, Bohm system, and the German system, the Euler system. That's what makes, right. What makes you so passionate about these key systems, and how did you first encounter the, the Reform Bohm specifically? Um, well, I was first introduced to the Reform Bohm clarinet. Uh, during a lesson with my professor in Hamburg in about 2008 or 2009, um, a young student of his or an ex-student came into my lesson uh, to clarify something and she had her reform boom clarinet with her. Uh, so my professor made me try it and said it was wonderful and I, I loved it. I was immediately converted. Um, I felt that the sound it produced was much fuller uh, and 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 much rounder than than my um, R13s. It was just just a much more beautiful sound, um, much more warmth. Um, the instrument as a whole was um, was significantly more in tune uh, than my R13s, and technically the instrument was unquestionably superior. Um, passages that I'd been struggling with. Um, Stravinsky, Rossini, or Crusell, things that I'd thought I would never, ever master, just flowed out effortlessly and brilliantly. And um, I also felt I had a much wider palette of, of interpretation and range and color at my fingertips. So there's many, many factors that are making these. It must be like for here what the Bohm system is. I mean, it's... it's uh... We have dozens, probably, of manufacturers building great instruments these days. How many would you yeah. say are building for Reform Bohm? Well, there's um, Leitner and Kaus, there's Rulitzer, there's Hyung, Dietz, and Schwenkensegelke. And do they all have like a German bore type system? Well, the Reform Bohm is a clarinet with a German bore. There are various other hybrids um, which have improved keywork without the German bore. Um, 
but the ones with the ones that are called a reform boom clarinet do have the, the slightly um, wider German bore, fourteen point eight or fourteen point nine millimeter bore. Interesting. So some French systems have even tried the the keywork improvements too, eh? Yes. Yeah. There's um, there's the Yamaha. I think it's called the CSG or something. That's right. Yes. Is it's it the, the CSG? CSG? Yeah. So there's um, there's there's the Yamaha CSG, uh, which has the German bore, but the standard reform bone keywork. So it's so interesting. What, what's the history of this reform bomb system and who invented it, where and, and why? Well, it has a much longer history than people, uh, people think. Um, the first one was made uh, by a clarinetist called Ernst Schmidt. Now, he lived in Leipzig. He was born in 1870, died in 1954. And he was very interested in acoustics and had already made the very unusual switch for a German player from Oehler to Böhm, rather like um, Dirk Altmann uh, in the Stuttgart Orchestra today. He preferred the, the Böhm keywork, but he didn't really like the intonation problems that came with it. So he took the instrument, redesigned the bore, and also recalculated the dimensions and positions of the tone holes. From about 1902 to 1930, 31, Schmidt collaborated with a German clarinet maker called Louis Kolbe, or Louis Kolbe, who was almost an exact contemporary. He died in 1952. And together they patented or patented the Schmidt Kolbe clarinet in 1905, um, which they then followed with a slightly uh, adapted version or a slightly um, improved version in 1905. 12, uh, when they added the two-hole speaker key for the, for the throat B-flat. Mm -hmm. um, Schmidt later collaborated with Fritz Wurlitzer, who is the grandfather of today's Ulrich Wurlitzer, and also with a physicist Friedrich Rösch, um, with whom he redesigned the mouthpiece. Um, they tested these instruments predominantly in orchestras in the Netherlands, which is possibly why they're, they're, uh, they're still quite popular in the Netherlands today, more so than in other places in the world. Um, Schmidt retired in 1935, and Wurlitzer took over the production, the full production of the, of the Reformboom clarinet, and he renamed the Schmidt Reformboom clarinet in 1956, and called it the Wurlitzer Reform Boom. Uh, yes, because I think that many people would regard sort of the 50s, 60s as the, the birth of these instruments, but it's interesting they come right. from quite a bit before then. They, well, they were, yes, they're sort of prototypes, and they were still being, being tested and developed. Um, interesting, however, is that after the 1950s, a lot of people, um, a lot of these names I mentioned before, the Hyung and the Dietz and Leitner and Kaus, they all used to work at Wurlitzer. Hmm. And that's why they, I, would not, I wouldn't go as far as to say learn their trade. Um, I don't have the authority to say that, but they certainly would have experienced the reform booms there. And uh, I know from owning my own Leitner and Kaus instruments um, that the, the two chappies there, Herr Leitner and Herr Kaus, um, they left Rolitzer in 1993 to set up on their own. Um, 
And yeah, that's what they do. They don't just make the reform booms. They make standard booms. They make rulet, um, not rulet, so they make standard booms. They make reform booms and they make the Euler, the standard Euler clarinets. Interesting. So doing all three. They do all three. And I, they do bass clarinets as well. And um, that's the interesting thing about uh, German, these German makers. They're not factories. They spe- They specialize in one thing a clarinet maybe two different clarinets or maybe three different clarinets but that's what they do and their instruments are handmade uh, from start to finish by the same person hmm. the and, same um, person does all the steps eh yeah wow yes and you can go along after you've bought it and see the person who made it for you um, and say well i'd like this i'm not happy with that i wouldn't be interested in changing xyz and you know you you have a much closer relationship and a much longer history with your instrument than the day from the day you buy it from the shop. From from the 1950s onwards, after Wurlitzer had taken over the production, um, various uh, makers um, left Wurlitzer and set up on their own. So you now get reform Böhm instruments as well as standard Böhm instruments and early instruments. Uh, made by people like Hung, Dietz, Leitner and Kaus, Schwenkensegelke, as well as the Wurlitzer instruments. Why do you think that they really took off in some parts of the world? Like you mentioned the Netherlands. That's right, yes. I think the Netherlands was the seat of... of um, th- that's where all these instruments were initially tested in the, in the early days. And I think that's where the popularity really um, began to grow. Um, that's sort of filtered down a little bit into Germany, although in Germany you have a very strong German tradition to contend with. Yeah, because it would seem that might be just sort of like a proximity thing. I mean, they were invented there and people, that's where they use them. And here, I've ne- I'd never seen one until I saw Reza's the other day. That was really yeah. the first time. I think, I think um, what's also important is that uh, there's, a, there's a wonderfully vibrant European community of clarinetists which is linked online via things like Facebook. Um, um, and I think that's where people uh, uh, go to meet other clarinetists. You can um, discover new instruments, find new techniques, and, and basically this, this, uh, this exchange. Um, and that's seated very, very, um, very firmly in Europe. And from there... The, 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 you know, it will, it will spread out and go to other places further afield, like Canada, like the States, um, like Japan. Um, I'm not sure if there's any in, in South Africa or in Russia. Um, but uh, what you've also got to contend with within that, of course, is the, uh, is the home culture of the, of the country you're visiting. In Germany, for example, um, the reform boom is growing in popularity, I think, because it offers you a much wider range of opportunities in terms of the sound color that you can produce. Um, but what you also have to bargain into that is the fact that your home culture has got a very strong um, um, influence on what's happening. I mean, if you take, for instance, the example of vibrato in Holland and the tradition of vibrato in Germany, the two are completely different. Um, no no vibrato at all in, in, the, in the German tradition in, in the last 20 or 30 years, that's slowly beginning to change. Um, uh, but the, the old school still maintains 
vibrato does not belong in the German clarinet sound. Do you know any of the history around that? Because that that always has fascinated me. I mean, saxophone, flute, oboe, all these instruments, they just love to use vibrato. And I know there's some, you know, sort of reasoning for clarinet as far as the overtone series or something not being at the octave or I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? Um, Because uh, vibrato vibrato in Germany is a a big no-no. Um, traditionally speaking, although I think that's possibly changing. Um, in fact, I, I, I know for a fact that that's changing. Uh, whereas in Holland, of course, um, vibrato has been part of the Dutch sound, Dutch clarinet sound for, for many, many years. And I think that's partly because um, Holland is a little bit more descriptive in its approach, rather like Britain. Um, there seems to be a much greater dif- degree of uh, freedom in what you do and that sort of wait and see what develops approach Whereas in Germany, they're slightly more um, prescriptive in, in, in that they want, they have this very, very particular ideal of what they're looking for. And they want you to produce that ideal. And that ideal um, includes no vibrato. Um, so that's, that's uh, one possible reason. Another factor is also, um, I believe anyway, is uh, that of role models. Um, I think it's very it's 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 crucial. It's it's very important. Um, yeah, crucial. Who you encounter as a young player and how they influence you. It might be your teacher. It might be a performer or a, or a clarinetist you you have um, heard play. Um, I was talking recently to Matthias Schorn. Um, he plays with the Vienna Philharmonic, and he plays. Um, the very, very Austrian um, Hammerschmidt clarinet, which is even more Euler than the German Euler, if you see what I mean. <laughs> it's Euler. Um, yes. Uh, and he explained to me how he, he initially began on the Böhm clarinet, um, as did his father, interestingly, um, grew up just outside Salzburg. Um, and the reason for that being um, their teacher, Chappie, called Alois Heine, who died in 2005, came over to that area close to Salzburg from France and brought his clarinet with him and then began teaching. And many of his students have gone on to do great clarinetty things, including, of course, uh, Matthias, who's now principal with the Vienna Philharmonic. Hmm. And Raisa also mentioned, of course, that she was heavily influenced by her teacher who listened to her sound and um, advised her on which instrument she might be interested in and 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 and, and that took off um, a third factor possibly um, why it takes off in some places and not others is uh, cost um, these instruments are not cheap um, and the, uh, because they're handmade they're not they're not factory produced obviously that has a has an effect on on uh, how much you're going to have to pay for one, and you're not going to want to buy an instrument that costs a seven-figure sum, unless you're absolutely sure that that's the instrument you're going to be playing for uh, the next good many years. Mm-hmm. Sorry, how much did you say? A seven-figure? Uh, depending on which currency you're operating in, yeah. Oh, I but- see. Okay, I was like, wow, we're talking <laughs> millions of dollars all of a sudden. This is going to be the... No, I mean, the- obviously, if you're working in Japanese yen, you're yes, going to have a okay. lot of zeros on the end. <laughs> That's true. Than if you're working in euros or dollars. So, with the three systems then, um, 
the reform Boehm, would you consider it kind of in the middle between uh, Oler and Boehm, or is it sort of standing on its own? Well, I think if you were to put them in a line um, with uh, the Boehm on the one end and the Oler on the other end, yes, I think the reform Boehm would sit somewhere between them. So I was expecting when I first uh, tried Reza's, um, and for those who don't know what I'm talking about with that, it, the last episode, a few episodes ago, I interviewed Reza Falman on the Reform Boehm clarinet. Um, she went to the Netherlands to study and came back to Canada and had switched while she was there. So if you want to check that out, I think it's episode 11 of the podcast. Um, but uh, I was expecting the fingerings to be a fair bit different for some reason. I thought that it would be crossing them a little bit more, and I I was really surprised that they weren't. Um Yes, it's, it's principally the same fingering system as the standard boom. You do have a couple of extra options uh, and choices. Um, the one which uh, most people uh, rave about is the forked left hand E-flat and B-flat. I think Raisa mentioned that as well, mm-hmm. where, where you use on the left hand, you use your thumb, uh, your first finger and your third finger to play an E-flat or a B-flat. Um, instead of having to use the side key or one of your little top keys. Yeah, do you still have the option of the little tiny key? Does that yes, still you, exist? Oh, so you, you have an extra way. So you've got another one. You've got an extra option. You've got even more choice, which is why it's so fantastic. That would be great, actually, for left-hand trills. If you're playing in, in, uh, in what I call flat keys, where you have B-flat and A-flat, yeah. it just makes the transition and scales much smoother. Yeah, absolutely. Without without having to use the side key, and you're also not hopping with your finger three onto the top key. Um, it's all there are no sort of what I would call extras that you have to take into consideration. They're all sort of um, using the tone holes that are already under your fingers anyway, so that you can you can achieve a much greater degree of fluency. So my next question was, you know, I see all these great keywork improvements and things like that. And my, my thought is, well, why can't you just put these keys onto a normal boom? And, and maybe that's just a mental block I'm having. Like, is the reform boom, it seems like it's beyond the keywork. It's the, the, the bore, the realignment of the tone holes, like all these things, correct? Yes, the, um, a reform boom is uh, improved keywork, a slightly different bore and repositioning of the tone holes. You need all three elements to make it a reform boom. Um, so could we have a slightly reformed boom with just the keywork? You or? can. You can. If the instrument you're looking for is one that has improved keywork and a standard boom bore, then um, you could go to someone like Wolfgang Dietz um, and ask them. I think they do one, and I believe... There's a place in Japan called Josef. Um, it's a rather odd German spelling for a Jap- Japanese manufacturer. I don't know very much about them. Um, but according to their website, they offer an MK11 clarinet, which is a Boehm clarinet, um, uh, that they've uh, added some of the reform keywork improvements to. But I couldn't find any indication that it has a more German-style bore. Interesting. So a lot of uh, comments came in about the last episode, and I'm expecting a similar response to this one. I was really surprised by the feedback, actually, because mm-hmm. I think most of the other episodes, people either listened or they didn't, or they, you know, 
like they either wanted to hear what the artist had to say or they didn't want to hear or yeah. something. But this one, it seemed like everyone who listened had an opinion and, and, and a lot of people shared that, which I think is fantastic. But I was great. Like mm-hmm. I said, I was kind of surprised. Um, some of the comments came in about tuning issues, which is odd because I hear people who play Reform Bohm talk about how the tuning is improved. So what what, what, may, what might be causing that discrepancy as far as uh-huh. tuning? Yes. Um, with tuning on the Reform Bohm, often the problem lies with the mouthpiece. Um, and if, if any of your listeners are struggling with uh, tuning issues here, then my first suggestion would be to try some different mouthpieces. Um, different specifications, German ones, French ones. Um, I had one um, that I had made by Leitner & Krauss, which is made of wood, and it's absolutely beautiful to look at uh, and produces a a wonderful, rich, velvety, voluminous sound. But unfortunately, the lay is about one and a half millimeters too short, which makes the mouthpiece useless in terms of intonation. Um, so yes, do try some different mouthpieces. Maybe that will solve your intonation problem. Um, I think what people also should remember is that in Germany we play uh, we play to four four three, and if you have an instrument that's made in Germany, then it will probably be made to four four three unless you specify uh, that you need it for four four zero or four four two or you know. You need to you need to make it make it clear, and I think if people buy an instrument without um, without taking that into consideration, then they're going to go home, sit in their orchestra, and suddenly realize that they're not quite in tune with the rest of the rest of the rest of the band. Wow, that's extremely uh, high. I didn't know that. I thought it was four forty four forty one or two over there. No, we're on, when in Hamburg we're on four four three. Interesting, because I was playing a project last year with marimba, and the marimba is tuned to 442, and all mm-hmm. I could do, it was all I could do to lip up my clarinet, because I was using a standard length barrel with a 440 tuned mouthpiece, and I was still yes. flat all the time, so I ended up getting a 442 mouthpiece and a, a millimeter shorter barrel, and that finally fixed it. Mm. Um, I think that's the, that, that's the magic word, the barrel, the mouthpiece as well. Um, once you start, what I noticed when I switched to reform is that the uh, the old technique of uh, pulling out when you weren't quite in tune, um, you can you can pull out on a reform boat. I find the margin that you that is available to you is much narrower, um, and very soon you start feeling the resistance coming back because the um, the air column inside the instrument is has been compromised by the the gap between your barrel and your body joint. Mm-hmm. So what that results in, of course, is uh, a series of barrels for um, different uh, circumstances. I have a barrel for England. I have barrels for Germany. I have barrels for playing in cold churches. And I have barrels for playing in the desert. <laughs> so, Everywhere. Um, more or less. So why would someone consider switching then to this system? What's the market for this type of clarinet? Um. Well, one of the points I'm trying to make uh, in my PhD is that the ownership of the sound you produce on a clarinet lies with you, the player, or more to a greater degree with you, the player, than with your instrument. Um, you can influence how your sound develops over time, um, and you can, you can, you know, it will change over time. It's, it's not quite as simple as uh, 
I'll just pick up a German clarinet and I'll suddenly have a German sound. Um, and several prominent clarinetists claim that they can identify a player um, regardless of which instrument they're playing on. Um, in Germany, it's a, it's, it's a very commonly held belief that you can only produce a German sound on a German instrument. And I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to dispel the, the, the idea that, um, that it's all in the instrument. So if you are looking for um, a greater um, breadth of choice in the sound that you make, or if you're looking for more flexibility in the keywork, or if you're looking to, um, I mean, I found with the intonation thing, you don't have to do as much correction with the embouchure as I did on my R13s. You play, you blow, and the intonation sits. This might be an odd thought that I'm having right now, but I mean, for me, part of playing the clarinet as a musical experience is being involved with what I would call the, I'm not sure I'd call them imperfections, I'd call them voicing of the notes, you know what I mean? Like, as you go up the scale uh, into the the higher clarion range, they're going to go flat unless you unless you do some work with your mouth. But that also kind yes. of clarifies the tone. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that there's no work involved. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> it's not quite that easy. You might as well just play a machine if that were the case. Yeah. Um, you still you still have to produce the sound that that comes out of it it doesn't just it's not like pressing a button and out it comes you still have to shape it and mold it and 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 form it um but to 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 go back to your question who who is the target audience i think if if you're if you feel that you've reached um if you've reached a, um, not an uh, yeah maybe an impasse with your sound and 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 uh, the possibility is what you can do with the sound you're producing on your current instrument then I would certainly suggest it's worth trying. I think that with the um, it's so interesting to me because I just I remember Raisa telling me about this and it was uh, the clarinets are expensive. I mean you, you've got to really be committed and so how might someone who is considering switching uh, especially someone in like Canada go mm -hmm. about this responsibly if you can't really find one to try I mean it seems like a huge gamble at this point Is, are there well, distributors that sell worldwide and, and can let you try the instruments or I'm not sure I mean certainly in Europe it's very easy for me because I can um, I can just phone them up there sort of a couple of hours away on the train it's yeah. it's, it's no big deal Um I really couldn't speak for um, distributors in Canada, but I would certainly recommend just phoning up the manufacturers and uh, expressing your interest in an instrument and talking to them and see what they suggest. Yeah, usually these people are pretty reasonable. I mean, they're not going to want you stuck with a twenty-five thousand euro set of clarinets if it's not for you. Or if it's yes, I yeah. mean, they obviously if they if they want to sell you an instrument, they want to sell you an instrument you're going to be happy with and that you're going to uh, you're going to um, that you're going to love. So for me, like I, this might just be because I haven't tried the other systems, but I, I'm generally happy with my sound and the way that things are. Mm. Is it still worth kind of looking into? Do you think just as an exploration or? Oh, definitely. As as a as a as an academic uh, exercise, uh, most definitely. Um, nobody can tell you you have to change. If you're happy with your sound, you're happy with your setup, then then you know if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, um, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't 
what is it called? Don't stop a running system. Yeah. Um, but in terms of personal development and, and experience as a clarinetist, um, I think you only have to gain uh, by trying it. You can compare it with your own instrument. Um, if you don't like it, that's fine. You've tried it, and you can you can disregard it. But you know you have that experience to draw on. Uh, you said no, it's not for me. Um, I think that that for me thing is so important, and, and one of the things that I've really gained from talking to people like uh, Martin Frost and Michael Norsworthy on this this show here is that. Mm. I found a running trend is that a lot of these people who are world-class artists and, and, uh, performers and, um, you know, yourself included, as you, as you talk about this, there's so much focus on you as the person playing the music and what do you want? You know, I think so many people in lessons or education, they go looking to be told what they should be doing Mm -hmm. to to get Mm -hmm. better. And they, they need to learn how to decide that for themselves. That's true. I, I agree with you. Um, and I think it is, it is a, um, a modern, uh, um, a modern thing. I think the move at the moment is um, taking ownership of of the sound you produce, as much as the the, the style of phrasing that you deliver, um, and the colours are also yours to shape and yours to mould and yours to influence. Um, and this is like this applies to any uh, sort of you know. I would call it gear. Talk, talk about gear for instruments, like whether it be mm-hmm. the instrument itself or mm-hmm. the ligature you use. I mean, you should try them all. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You know? I mean, some people um, use the, the 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 shoelace, the schnur, for the mouthpiece. Um, and we should I talk have... about that a little bit, actually. Sorry, mm-hmm. what's the history on that? Why do they continue to use that? I think it's a tradition thing. Um, some people argue that it um, it gives them a, a sound that they're happier with. Uh, I personally tried it and disliked it. I really didn't like it because I felt it made my sound um, dull and it didn't. I just didn't feel I had um, the resonance in the sound that I wanted. It just felt dull. There's so much contact, yeah. The read. Um, but again, it's 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 always it boils down again to the combination of which mouthpiece you're using, which strength read you have, and and you know it's it's equation uh, x plus y plus z equals nice sound. And you change one of those parameters, then uh, it's obviously going to influence the sound that you produce. Have you heard of a new company called uh, Viento Bamboo? They're from Argentina. No, I haven't. They're, that's okay. They're doing a string ligature now, or hand woven ligature, or something. It's mm-hmm. actually really cool, but it's sort of, I tried it on mine and it stays on because there's these little sort of shoelace things you can pull and then slide a little tightener into place. But I think I've seen one, yes. Yeah, it's just surprising that, that people still choose to tie them by hand versus doing that. It would, But it's 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 not that difficult. Yeah, I guess um, it's like tying your shoes, you know. It's just like tying your shoelace. And once you, once you have the technique, it's just round and round and round and round and round and sack and you're, and you're finished. It's done. It's done. Yeah, and actually, I've seen people do it much more quickly than I can get my uh, and get my um, my standard Rovner set and fixed and positioned and and tightened. <laughs> It'll be there forever sometimes. So you are using just a standard ligature on the on the. Um... I have yes, I have uh, I have a Rovner Versa for most of my work, but I do sometimes go back to my Van Duren Optimum. I think it's called. Mm-hmm. I know depending, that one. Yeah, depending on how much brightness I want, I find the optimum a little brighter. 
and I find the 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 Rovna um, a little fuller. Is that the one with those little plates you can switch around, the Vandoren? Uh, the, yes, the Vandoren, yes. But the Rovna, I have two plates for that as well. Hmm. Um, we should talk about the reeds as well. I, I was curious about that. They're, they're softer and they're smaller. Is that the case? German reeds are, yes. I use French reeds. Oh, okay. Um, made by an Austrian company called Pilgers. Oh, so, I forgot the name. Pilgersdorfer, I believe. Okay. So then you, so you actually can have a little more choice you must have a different facing then or something than the other german mouthpieces that people use um, the... i have a german i have a german rollitzer mouthpiece um i believe it must have a french facing because otherwise i wouldn't be able to use french cut reeds um that's another thing Reso was mentioning actually if you want to you can continue using the french style mouthpiece it's... and reed Yes, but it's not it's not a truly French mouthpiece because it doesn't fit on a buffet. Oh yeah, sorry, I don't mean like an actual that you could take yeah. your French mouthpiece yeah. you currently have, but there's kind of a French uh, facing style or something you can get yes, for these. Yeah, and that's possibly why um, my experiences when I changed were slightly different from Raisa. She mentioned that the, her embouchure she had uh, quite a long time, relatively speaking, to uh, change her style. Um, I didn't find I had that much of a problem. I mean, perhaps I should try a, a proper, in inverted commas, German mouthpiece um, as well to, to just make the experiment and, and uh, compare the sound. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't got around to doing that yet. So this is an interesting question too. You're from Germany. Are you living in Germany currently or are you from there originally? I'm originally from the UK. Oh, okay. Because I was going to ask how you got playing the, the Bohm clarinet originally, but... Uh, mm. That's how. <laughs> That's how. No, I originally started in the UK and I came to Germany when I was oof, in my late 20s, I think. Okay. Great. So is there anything else you want to share about the Reform Bohm system before we do the last few questions here of the lightning round? Or as Peter Stokes um, called it, Vivace round? <laughs> vivace, Vivace. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think... Um, What's your favorite feature about it? My favorite feature... Um, I, th I don't think it's one particular aspect. Um, I mean, there is the extra, the extra trill on it, which means you can trill um, a G to a G sharp or a C to a C sharp, left hand C to C sharp, uh, with your right hand finger one, um, which makes it nice easier. Um, but I think my favorite feature is the fact that you have so much more options, so much more choice, both in terms of the sound that you can produce and um, which fingerings to use. So thanks so much for coming on the show today, Sue. Um, Thank you. Let's do the lightning round now, which is a series of short questions to try and answer in under a minute, but I'm not, uh, <laughs> no one's on the clock here. It's just, <laughs> so, um, but what is one book that you would recommend to the clarinet audience and why? Um, one book, I think it would have to be the Jack Brimer one, because even though it's a little bit dated, he does touch on so many fields which were far in advance of what the um, previous writers on the clarinet had touched upon. What's the title of that book? Do you remember? It's called The Clarinet, and it's in the Yehudi Menuhin series. Yeah, there's that one, and there's some other... I thought he did another book, too. He did do another one. It's called From Where I Sit, and that was his... I believe it's his autobiography. And if anybody would like to buy me that for Christmas, I'd be a very grateful receiver. Oh, is it out of out of print? Um, possibly. I'm not sure. I haven't got one. That's... Um... 
What was the best piece of advice that you ever received and who gave it to you? Um, the best piece of advice is, uh, was given to me by a series of old ladies whom I encountered on the internet who uh, reflected on their lives as they were nearing the end of theirs. And they said, follow your dream because the regret you feel when you're old and didn't follow your dream is much, much greater than the effort it would take to actually do what you want to do while you still can. Wow, that's deep. How did you mm. encounter these? What, what was the, these women? To be honest, I think it was just sort of some uh, banal Facebook um, better yourself post something video nothing of any great seriousness that I just clicked on one day while I was procrastinating. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's very true, though. Yes, I think it is true. If I were to walk over to a music stand right now, what would I find? Um, well, I've got three big concerts coming up this weekend. So you'd find Gershwin's uh, Piano Concerto for the bass clarinet, Raval's Laval's for the bass clarinet, um, plus some chamber work I'm working on, chamber music I'm working on, the Budkowitz, uh Four Bagatelles, mm -hmm. some Kupsch studies, which are always on my music stand. And then you'd also find some essentials, which I have there for the bass clarinet, including Bach cello suites, ah. and um, a piece by Mark Mellitz called Black that I play every now and again with my bass clarinet duo. Is your bass clarinet reform boom as well? No, it's not. Um, I did try the reform boom bass clarinet at Leitner and Kraus, and um, they made it especially for me to try. And uh, I decided in the end not to buy it because it was hugely expensive, and I didn't really feel comfortable with the non-automatic uh, register key stroke um, B flat thing. There's two. Uh, there's two speaker keys for the upper octave. Oh, so you have to um, kind of choose which one you're using? On, yes, on the bass clarinet. And on most bass clarinets, it's an automatic mechanism. Mm. Um, but the one they produced um, then, when, whenever it was, a few years ago, uh, it wasn't yet with the automatic mechanism. And it was too much money to have to relearn something so fundamental. Um, I believe they have now made one that has the automatic mechanism. I'm not 100% sure, but if anybody is interested in one, I know they, they, they would make one. They do that um, for people. Uh, but I've since got a Selma Privilege, I believe it's called. I always get it mixed up with the... Um, was yeah. it, I always mix it up with Prestige. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, there's two models or something they have. There's a Prestige, which is the Buffet R13 Prestige model. And the oh, yeah, Selma, Selma is the privilege, yeah. Selma is the privilege, yes. Yeah. So I have a, a Selma privilege. Interesting. What is your, and people hate this question so far, but it's a good one. That's why I keep it in here. Mm -hmm. What is your all-time favorite piece of music? It's not possible to have an all-time favorite piece of music because moods change, weather changes, everything changes, but... If I were cast away on a desert island and could only take one record with me, then it would be Mahler's Second Symphony. Um, uh, in addition to the uh, Mahler Second Symphony, because, well, Mahler's Second Symphony contains every possible human emotion ever. Um, but I also couldn't live without Bach, of course, about the big, without the big father. Mm -hmm. And also without Schubert's Winterheiser for those uh, darker moments. Um, Schubert Winterreise is actually the piece of music that brought me to Germany 
and made me learn German. Really? And, uh, and there's also a pretty random piece uh, which was played by a group called the Rogues of Scotland, which is a, a Scottish or an American Scottish uh, pipes and drums band. And it's called, um, it's called the Gravel Walk, and it morphs halfway through into Angie Rennick's Regret and then morphs back again. And um, uh, that is just euphoria poor. You put that on full volume and dance around the living room when nobody's watching, and that is fantastic. <laughs> so I have a feeling I know the next answer to this question based on your, your piece, uh, your favorite piece. But if you could go back in time... Mm-hmm. Or, or even in the present, if you could meet any musician, past or present, who would it be and why? There would have to be two. I'd have to meet Bach to introduce him to the clarinet. Oh. <laughs> um, but I would also have to go back in time and meet Marla and his wife. He wrote her an awful letter, either on the eve of their wedding or just after, saying it would be embarrassing. I couldn't possibly bear the shame of having a wife who was a better composer than I am, so stop. <laughs> or words to that effect. To his credit, I must add that he... Uh, he did actually realize the error of his ways towards the end of his life and, uh, um, and sort of, as the Germans would say, buried his head in ashes Interesting. and asked, asked for forgiveness. But yes, that is one of the greatest, um, greatest uh, losses to the classical music world uh, that Mahler forbade his wife to compose. That's terrible. I had no idea about that. So if people are interested in learning more about you or the Reformbaum uh, system, how can they find you online? Well, um, I do have a website, uh, which is www.surail.com. Um, I'm afraid I don't speak hashtag, um, but I am on Facebook. You can find me with a picture of me and my clarinet. And yes, I'd be very happy to hear from anybody who's, uh, who's got something to say about the reform bum or about the sound differences or alleged sound differences, if you like, between the three clarinets that we've talked about today. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, D'Addario ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.